Welcome to About the Adventure podcast with your host Sarah Lister here in the Peak District. This episode brings you an interview with Anna Danby, who is a mountain leader based in the Scottish Highlands. She specialises in mountain skills, guided walks and wild camping journeys with landscape and nature at heart through her company, Wild Roots Highland Guiding. Anna's career path has been led by her ethos that it's important for humans to reconnect with nature. Here you'll find out why and how she facilitates this through her work. But first, let's hear about how she ended up living in Scotland and what it's like in the mountains there. In my childhood, there's three memories connected with Scotland that that have always been core memories for me, if you like, which I I find is interesting because, you know, those are the three times I only ever came to Scotland before the age of 21 or something. But they definitely always had a sort of special feeling around them. I, I always feel like I held them close, but then I didn't actually move. I didn't a- I actually come to Scotland, you know, under my own steam as it were, until an adult, I moved to Edinburgh to do a master's. And it wasn't until doing that really, that I started really having experiences in the Scottish mountains. The master's course I was doing in Edinburgh was, um, it's got a rather mouthy title. It was Outdoor Environmental and Sustainability Education. It was very experience-based, practical-based. So a lot of the courses we were up in the Highlands, being out in these places, exploring how to use the landscapes and the outdoor environment as a as a learning development resource. And I remember the first time driving across Rannoch Moor, which is this kind of big, the road cuts right through the middle of the moor, big, vast open space. And then you're at the other side of it is Glencoe. So you approach like, Bucolet of Moor, which if you've ever seen a kind of picture postcard of Scotland's mountains, it's probably a picture of Bucolet of Moor, which is a very, let's say if a kid drew a mountain, it would look like Bucolet of Moor, you know, it's very traditional mountainy shapes. And as you drive across Rannoch Moor, it's just kind of looming ahead of you. And there was various people in the bus that, you know, were quite experienced climbers or had done lots of stuff in Scotland. And they were all talking about like the rock climbs and climbing up its face. And I was just like, completely like what how is that even possible like I don't even imagine how you would walk to the top of that mountain never mind like you know climb up the cliffs that I was sort of looking at looming above the road so that was I that was definitely the first moment that I kind of yeah I remember engaging with the landscape on a sort of over you know with a sense of awe definitely we didn't actually climb any hills on that trip we were heading out to the Isle of Rum but um yeah, and then very slowly, I think, slowly, slowly, in the context of the Scottish Highlands, everybody talks about Munros. So Munros are mountains over 3,000 feet, uh, 215 metres about, that were kind of classified by a guy called Hugh Munro um, a long time ago, and there's 282 of them, so they're the highest peaks in the Highlands, and everybody, and there's a big kind of culture around Munro bagging and you know climbing all 282 Munros and um, people are always asking me oh what was your first Munro and I, I I don't actually remember like I don't remember what the first one was I remember the sort of feelings of being in these landscapes and the kind of overall experiences but I I don't remember exactly the name of the mountain which maybe is because I've never been that focused on on the summits but who knows? <laughs> Maybe I was just too overwhelmed. And how would you describe, from your perspective, the 
mountains in Scotland? How would you describe it to someone who's maybe never visited and doesn't have much experience there? It's a really hard thing to encapsulate in words, I think, because one of the standout things for me about the, the mountains in the Highlands is that they're so diverse. The character of the mountains in the West, um, where I am, is completely different to, you know, the mountains in the East around the Cairngorms um, or the Southern Highlands around Loch Lomond and Loch Lomond in that area. So there's a huge amount of diversity. You know, you've got everything from big, rounded, rolling hills to rocky spikes kind of jutting straight up out of the sea. And they each have their unique kind of individual character. So I think that's, that is one of the standout things is that the, there's so much variety within a small area. And although they have, you know, although they definitely give you that sense of wild, they're all still quite accessible. Um, so you don't have to, you know, walk for days to get to the mountains and that kind of thing. But they just, yeah, I think if I, without kind of waffling on forever, I think it would be just diversity in the shapes and the, the shapes and the forms, the colours, the animals and plants that you sometimes happen across, you know, are different in the different places as well. And do you have a preference for the seasons? Because I know that you've quite recently completed your winter mountain leader qualification. Is winter the time that you really enjoy and do you enjoy the challenge of that? Or what's your preferred time of year if there is one I think if I had to pick them my the, my favorite seasons are the sort of transition seasons so um spring and autumn that kind of late winter into early spring where you know you can still have the most glorious mountain days in in snow in the mountains so the experience has a lot of different elements to it even within one day um and then also autumn in the highlands is just magical with all the the changing colours and the stags rutting and the, the sounds and the, the kind of sensual experience of autumn, I think, is quite is quite special. Yeah, winter, I mean, I, I probably describe having a love-hate relationship with winter. Um, I love the challenges when the mountains are underneath snow. It's a whole different world, you know, it's not the same place that it is in summer. And that brings a lot of different interest and chan and challenges as well but yeah it can also be quite an, an intimidating place. So how did you go from sitting on that bus and listening into these conversations about the crazy things that people were doing to where you are now and now you're taking people out into the mountains and giving them the experience of being out in the wild and wild camping, walking on challenging terrain. How did this happen? Good question. <laughs> slowly, 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 slowly is the answer. I think when I'm when I was doing that masters in Edinburgh, which was all around connecting people with landscapes, learning about nature and wild places underneath with a sort of overarching ethos of that uh, of sustainability, of the kind of importance of reconnecting humans with nature, you know, that we sort of have separated ourselves from as, as not a part of it or not an equal part of it, let's say, that that is, is essential if we ever want to move towards a more sustainable way of 
being on planet Earth and thinking about our our impacts on this place that we call home. Everything on the masters that I did was was ta- was aimed to that. So it was really a, a very influential year, and I really resonated with everything that we did on that course and left feeling pretty motivated that that was what I wanted to do that I wanted to you know whatever I wanted to do I wanted to feel like I was you know in some small way reconnecting people with nature and hopefully getting them to think a little bit more mindfully about their impact on the planet and then when I finished my master's I was living in Edinburgh I didn't want to leave Scotland I needed work (laughs) I'd had a summer job with Edinburgh Science Festival, which is a big established science festival that run workshops for families and schools on all different kinds of science topics. So I ended up working for them for a while, touring all over Scotland. It did kind of give me a really deeper sense of Scotland because I was going to all these random places that I probably still would have never been to if I you know, wasn't being sent to that, that primary school. So I think that all fed into my connection with Scotland. And ultimately, it led to me getting a job at Dynamic Earth, which is an earth and environmental science centre based in Edinburgh. Um, So if you've ever been to Edinburgh, it's right next to the Parliament and Holyrood Park. Looks like a massive tent. Um, But it's a science centre that tells the story of planet Earth. So, you know, back on the kind of earth and environmental theme, I got a job as a learning officer. So very similar to the job I've been doing with the Science Festival working with school groups and community groups and running workshops on everything from space and astronomy to climate change and recycling. (laughs) Fast forward 10 years and I was still there, but now in a position of managing the learning teams and programs at the centre. I'd actually developed a whole outdoor learning program, you know, getting the kids and the young people that we were working with out in Holyrood Park, learning about the landscapes of Edinburgh by being in them. So it wasn't in the mountains, but it was out in in Hollywood Park. And we established a a summer school, which is still going very successful, where we took kids for a week over the summer holidays. And that would be, you know, all out in the park doing everything from kind of bug collecting to team building and, and that sort of thing. So I spent 10 years at Dynamic Earth and it was a it was a great place to work and I learned a lot about people and education and leadership and geology because I'm not a geologist. Yeah, but I still at the back of my mind I still had this, you know, connection back to my masters and back to that desire to do what I was doing at Dynamic Earth but to do it in the mountains and to be much more in wild places. I had a 9 to 5 job Monday to Friday that I loved with great colleagues in a city that I liked, the idea of setting up my own business, of leaving all that behind, it was it was kind of unfeasible, really. I don't remember a conscious point at which I decided I was going to do that. But basically what happened was that I got pregnant intentionally and suddenly everything was changing anyway. And we'd been talking about making this move to the West Highlands because... Uh, I met my partner through rock climbing. We spent all of our time running away to the mountains at weekends and evenings, sometimes even after work. And so we'd been talking for a while about, you know, moving to the mountains and occasionally visiting Edinburgh. Yeah, when I when I got pregnant and, you know, maternity to leave and everything, it just seemed like, well, everything's changing anyway. Let's take this opportunity to, to just go the whole hog, as it were. <laughs> so... I left Dynamic Earth on maternity leave, being very open with them from the start that I wasn't planning to come back. Yeah, then it just unfolded from there, really. So I did my summer mountain leader training when I was five months pregnant. 
um, which with hindsight maybe was more of a challenge than I realised at the time, but I was very dogged that I was going to continue everything that I was already doing. And then it was COVID and Brexit and all of these big kind of upheavals that we've had in the past um, four years, really, since my daughter was born. So everything didn't kind of progress as, as quickly as I'd hoped, but ultimately it gave me the space to to live in the Highlands and to connect with the landscape on a personal level before I before I actually you know started doing it for work so I think actually it was actually worked out quite well for me if we don't consider the financial implications. What was it like doing your summer mountain leader training and assessment then while you were pregnant? So the summer mountain leader I think I found relatively straightforward you know by this time by this point I had been spending a huge amount of time in the Scottish mountains for for the past 10 years really you know all of that time of being in Edinburgh I'd been seeking out experiences in the mountains so it was a place that I was already pretty comfortable with the mountain leader qualifications quite rightly have a huge focus on on leadership and on your ability to look after a group and to ensure that the people that you're out with on the mountain have a good time and that they learn something. And obviously all of that was what I'd also already been doing for all of my career, working with people and leadership and education and supporting people. So so there was a lot of elements of, of the summer mountain leader that I was really very comfortable with. Navigation is what lots of people find the most challenging. And that was definitely the same for me. I often say like my brain works in spirals and fireworks, not in sort of straight lines and and <laughs> logical calculations. But like anything, if you give it enough time and effort, then, then you find a way in. I think the process of the Summer Mountain Leader was relatively straightforward for me and I, and I enjoyed it. You know, I, I learned a lot through the process, but within a context that I felt quite capable within the assessment, Again, I'd been totally naive, like, oh, I'll have the baby and then be able to finish off all my quality mountain days, you know, while the baby and then I'll do my assessment just a few months after she's born. No, (laughs) she was almost 18 months old by the time I did the assessment. In part, that was also COVID delays. But, you know, largely it was the fact that, yeah, having a baby isn't quite as easy as I had anticipated. Because obviously, even within those 18 months, you must have still been going out uh, to get your quality mountain days. How did you how did you balance that time? Well, I mean, I'm lucky in the context that Simon, my partner, we've always had a very equal parenting relationship and he is self-employed. He runs his own engineering consultancy, so his work is relatively flexible. We were able to share childcare and he was able to give me time around that. One of the biggest things that I hadn't really anticipated was the physical impact of, of having a pregnancy and that kind of journey that that sort of physical recovery of of my body being capable of going in the hills again on you know on any level comparable to what I'd been doing before took a lot longer than I'd expected but in a way the framework of the mountain leader was actually quite helpful to that because if you're doing a day really focused on navigation then actually it's not that physical it was just slowly slowly building up and the fact that we were by now living in the west highlands with the mountains on our doorstep obviously makes a massive difference because I could go and be out for six hours and do a quality mountain day. I didn't have to drive for three hours to access the hills either way. And that that definitely made a big difference. Has it taken a lot of courage for you to go through all of these steps? 
I mean, I think doing anything, doing anything in life takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? And certainly, you know, making changes and doing something totally new. I don't remember at any point thinking, oh gosh, this is brave. This is kind of out there. But I do look back and think, wow, yeah, what was I doing? Why did I change all of those things at the same time? I've definitely always been a person that tries to live in the moment. And if people ask me, you know, sometimes like those old school kind of interview questions in a job interview where people ask, you know, where do you see yourself in one year, three year, five years, 10 years time? I, I'd just be, I just, I would just be like, I don't know. I'm not quite sure where I'm going to be next week, never mind in a year's time. <laughs> and so I don't know if this is on the, the line of courage, but I suppose my point is that you never know what's going to happen. And so all you can do is do the things that feel that feel right to you that feel like they're gonna that enable you to to be be your best self and to be happy in what you're doing and breaking it down like that just thinking about the immediate future and the decisions that you're making in terms of what's happening in the next few months the next year rather than what's happening in the next 10 years makes it more possible to make changes i think but it's just about not being overwhelmed by thinking oh gosh but what will happen in 10 years if I do this now? Well, you know, there's no way of knowing. But I think in terms of courage in relation to the mountain leader and to doing challenging things, the summer mountain leader was relatively within my comfort zone. The winter was not. Like winter was a whole different ballpark and I was very much out of my comfort zone. Going into the summer mountain leader assessment, I knew, I, I kind of knew that I was going to be fine, but that, you know, that wasn't the same going into winter. It was a really overwhelming process. And I did have to use a lot of, yeah, a lot of courage, a lot of self-belief, you know, give myself a lot of talking to, you know, you can do this and kind of reflecting on the journey that you've gone, that you've done to get to that point and just always reminding yourself about how capable you are, even in those moments when it feels like everything's impossible. Have you had times when you've been out in the ice, in the snow, for example, or just in really gnarly conditions where you have felt really vulnerable or fearful when you've maybe been out on your own or even with a group? The time that always stands out to me in relatively recent times, so this would have been about, I don't know, six years ago, something like that. I wasn't on my own. I was with Simon, my partner, although he wasn't my partner at the time, and another one of our friends, Eric, both who are very experienced climbers and mountaineers. It was winter. Uh, we were on the cooling ridge and... I didn't really have a clue, uh, so I was very much in their hands. I think I might have worn crampons once before. We'd done the initial climb, gone past the first summit, which had all been completely fine, and then all of a sudden we got to this kind of exposed, rocky section of the ridge in winter conditions, so there's also snow and ice and rocks, and you're wearing these spiky things on your feet. And, you know, Eric and Simon were just what felt to me like sort of dancing around merrily on this sort of perilous, terrifying ridge. It's the only time in my recent memory where I experienced what my clients experience quite often, uh, where I just I couldn't move like a bit of a tricky step down. And my brain was just telling me, you can't do this. If you do this, you're going to like fall off the mountain and go all the way you know, down to the bottom. So I had an emotional moment my friend Eric who is German and very matter of fact and doesn't deal well with 
<laughs> with with me being emotional but he was actually very good but basically I refused to move until they put the rope on at this point we hadn't been roped up to this point he just felt so vulnerable in that moment and suddenly hyper aware of all the things that could happen if it went wrong probably quite logically because we were in a serious place but as soon as the rope was on you know I just stepped down totally easily no problem so it also shows how much of it was in my head and that is true for a lot of people we are very capable but our brains get in the way. <laughs> and sometimes some days are just different to others and we don't maybe know exactly why. Definitely. And everybody experiences that. You know, I was out with a woman yesterday who had got in touch because she wanted to build confidence for walking on more rocky and like exposed terrain, exactly the kind of stuff I was just talking about, although not in winter. We were having this conversation, like some days you're up for taking on the world and some days that's just not going to be... The, you know, not going to be a sensible thing to try and do. And there's there's so many factors involved in that, you know, everything from uh, what's happened in the week up to that point, what you've had for breakfast, what your hormones are doing, how much sleep you've had. All of these factors affect our resilience, our, our ability to deal with challenges. And I think it's easy to give yourself a hard time because on one particular day, it's just not happening. But I think what gives you more strength in the long term is to actually acknowledge that and to own that fact that we don't have to be superheroes every day. <laughs> Do you feel like experiences like that are helpful because now you're leading groups and you may have people in those groups that doubt their own ability? So do you feel like going through that yourself is a good experience for you to then adapt as a leader as well. Yeah, 100%. I think one of the things I always try and get across to people is that that everybody has these moments. Everybody has things that are challenging for them. Everybody's been in these same situations, you know, the the elements, the reasons that you that you you felt like that are not the same for everybody, you know, the factors that kind of lead you to that point, but but everybody has had to overcome difficult situations and that for me yeah, that moment is really useful because like you were saying earlier, when you feel like that, it's not helpful. Other people saying, oh, stop, stop, you know, just get on with it. And in that moment, that fear is very real for that person. It doesn't help just to say, oh, stop being silly. You just just get over it. You know, what helps is to give them practical, um, useful ways to feel back in control. A lot of fear is related to feeling completely out of control of a situation. And like we are no longer able to keep ourselves safe. The way that I try to help people through these things is to give them ways that when they get to that point of feeling overwhelmed by a situation, they can actually take it back and be like, OK, well, this is happening. You know, this is a tricky, rocky step or this is a, a steep drop that I'm next to. But I know that I now have the skills and experience to keep myself safe in this situation and therefore use that internal voice to not let the fear take over. <laughs> For me, I still need to use that when I'm rock climbing. You know, it doesn't happen to me when I'm walking anymore, but it definitely does still happen to me, you know, when I also put myself in situations that are, that are challenging. It sounds like the experiences that you offer to people are more than going for a walk in the mountains. It sounds like you're working with people to help with their confidence, whether it's with terrain or just generally being out there, but also from from learning about your retreats that you offer in the mountains and your wild camping trips, it's, uh, it seems like you're offering that real 
deep connection with the landscape how do you facilitate that how do you make it more than a beautiful walk in in the mountains by offering quite conscious Shona always calls them invitations so Shona is so Shona is one of my colleagues who I work with quite a lot on some of our journeys Uh, Shona always calls them invitations which I think is a really nice way of putting it you know rather than saying activities or because everything is always optional you know when you come out with me whether it's just me on on my own or um with Shona is um you know the stuff that we offer in, to try and actively enable people to engage with landscapes and to get that deeper connection is all optional because everything doesn't always appeal to everybody in that moment. But they are quite conscious invitations and they range from things like the more geological, scientific side of things, if you like. So I have a whole range of kind of resources and diagrams and little stories that I use to try and bring the the geological story of the landscape to life for people. When you're out in these environments, you can point things out and you can talk about them. But for a lot of people, it's overwhelming to try and get your head around, you know, these events that have happened hundreds of thousands of years ago on a, you know, on a scale that's beyond our, our kind of easy comprehension. So there's a few resources and pictures and things that I use to show within the setting and the environment to help people, you know, to offer a way in. So there's things like that around the geology, the landscape, and also the plants. We use a lot of stories and poems that relate to the places that we're in, lenses, if you like, that we're trying to kind of get people to access. To access. And also just allowing time. So I think one of the things that makes the biggest differences on all of my guiding is, is to, to an, allow some moments within a day or within an experience to actually just be in a place and to not be walking you know to not be um, pushing for the summit or um, kind of trying to cover ground as quickly as possible but actually just to be able to sit and to notice you know all of the lichens that are growing on the rock at your feet or you know the flowers that you wouldn't have seen otherwise the feeling of the the wind on your face, you know, all these little things that can easily pass you by if you don't pause and and have that con- conscious moment to connect with it. And, it, you know, I'm not talking about hours. It, it can be five minutes, you know, and that can make a really big difference to your overall experience of a hill day if you've just taken that time out to to really consciously allow yourself to, to be fully in, immersed in a place. Do you find that challenging to do within that group environment? Because you know how sometimes when a new group of people come together, there's a temptation to be chatting all the time, trying maybe some people trying to fit in, some people maybe feeling like they don't and struggling. How how do you nurture it so that people feel like they can just be quiet and have a few minutes to just take that time i mean i think that's where the the conscious invitations are really important rather than just expecting that it will just happen naturally because like you say especially you know a group of people that have not met each other before we feel like polite conversation is necessary actually so actually just creating the the space where we you know i might say okay we're on a relatively straightforward bit of the trail we're going to go until this path junction and we're going to be in silence and just note let's just notice what we're going you know so creating those containers where you give permission you give people the permission to 
yeah not feel like they have to talk or they have to be in a certain way again with the other activities as well just yeah just making it clear that there are no there's no expectations because there's a lot of value that comes from talking and meeting to people as well so it's definitely not wanting to to exclude that element of it but just creating space within the day for different ways of being and what do you see happen to people what's the transition from when they arrive to when they leave oh it's amazing really especially on the stuff on the on the camping journeys where i spend three days with people and three days two nights out in the wild away from everything it feels like much longer we usually meet on the friday morning and get back by the sunday evening by the sunday evening kind of looking back on the friday morning just seems like you can't believe how much you've experienced in that time the things that people say after those journeys that they've just you know, feel completely differently about where they where they are in their lives, that it's given them the space and time to tackle a problem or, you know, something that they've been trying to move past for a long time. They have a, a real significant shift in their self-confidence. You know, they realise that they can do these things, that it was hard and it was maybe painful at times, but actually they can do it. And, you know, you see almost sometimes like a, a weight's been, been lifted. You know, people leave much more with a with with much more self-belief about what they're capable of doing and obviously that's not just about what you do in the hills but it's about how you live your everyday life as well so running these camping journeys on a you know the night before the day before when I've got Alina pulling on one leg and emails to reply to and social media to grapple with and I'm trying to pack camping gear for six people I'm you know sometimes it feels overwhelming and I'm like oh why am I doing this like it's so much work but absolutely without a doubt you know the minute that I meet the group of people and then see the experiences they have it's just like it's such a privilege to be able to facilitate that and I really I'm really grateful that I'm able to do it and I'm really grateful that people come and get so much out of it so yeah it's it's very rewarding and what's it like collaborating with Shona and is there a yoga teacher as well that you collaborate with yeah so uh, there's various people that I collaborate with so um Shona McPherson is a she's a life coach and counselor so she works with me on some of the on the highland wilderness journeys so she brings the mindfulness kind of self-reflection elements to the journeys Lindsay Warwick is a uh, well she's many things but yeah in the context of working with me we run the yoga journeys together so she's very experienced yoga teacher and she brings that kind of practice to some of our camping journeys as a work with John Fern who is an adventure coach and we're working together this year on the rocks and bridges courses so um, he's got loads of experience around helping people get the most out of their adventures in the mountains and he's got much more let's say experience in terms of the physical kind of how to train your your body to be good for these things so I think that's really valuable input into into those courses and I, I love working I think when you're self-employed and your business is just you you know sometimes it can be quite a lonely place I'm a very sociable person as is probably evident from from this conversation and I miss having colleagues and having that kind of support around you that working in a team environment has collaborating with other people gives you a bit of that and that's really valuable but it also enables a much richer experience for the people that come along because it's not just 
me and my experience and my perspective but there's somebody and all these people you know obviously we have a lot in common but we also have a lot you know we're also very different and we have different experiences and different perspectives different knowledge and so that means that people that come are getting double the value essentially because they're not just getting getting me but they're getting another professional input as well so it's very good value I would say. What's the most effective way that you attract people to the offerings that you that you have? Uh, Well this is the thing that is very hard about being self-employed running your own business or it's certainly the thing that I find the hardest is attracting people. (laughs) I don't doubt that there are lots of people out there that are interested in what I'm offering but the challenge is exactly as you say reaching them and in this in the modern world there's so much stuff out there that kind of getting your voice heard above or even equal to others is um is challenging I don't have a marketing budget I don't have any my income is not such that there is anything left over to pay for marketing so the main way so my only real ways that I reach people are through you know, obviously I have a website, social media, and the most powerful way really is word of mouth, is people talking about, you know, the people that have been on experiences, talking and sharing what they have experienced with others, and also just friends and family and people that know me kind of sending people in my direction. And that is the other big advantage of collaborations, because it means that, you know, the people that you collaborate with, their networks also start to hear about what you're doing. So you've kind of doubled your, you know, doubled your reach. But it's definitely the, the element of I love everything about my work, but I don't love having to promote myself. <laughs> it's hard work. That's the bit that feels like work, actually. Yeah, I think especially when you're not sure, because like you say, there's so many different ways that you can do it. But when you're not sure which one is going to be the most effective then it's a bit of a gamble isn't it in terms of which platform you go for but I have to say that you you have definitely attracted my attention in in the way that you do things so through your Instagram lives for example your interviews that you've done with people and things like that that has definitely struck a chord with me but also just in your offerings because I think they really are unique and and the and the way and the way that you do it and you mentioned earlier about packing for six people so does that mean that you provide equipment for people who don't have it yeah so on the camping journeys the idea is that you don't have to have any experience of camping or any of your own kit to be able to come on these journeys that's one of the ways that we try to make them accessible to a wider range of people a lot of the time it's people's first experience of camping full stop never mind wild camping so yeah we provide all the camp equipment etc and also provide all the food so that's another partnership I guess I forgot about Liz sorry Liz so Liz uh, Strong Arbor Produce is a local chef and her and her husband have a, a rapidly growing croft garden and grow a huge amount of food and and they and she does all the catering for my trip so it's delicious home cooked relatively local food as well because that's another big element you know that can be quite overwhelming like oh my god I'm going to be away for three days with no shops and no cafes and no kitchen like what what on earth would I take to eat basically people just have to turn up with what they would normally turn up for a day walk and everything else is provided for you when people think about mountain guiding 
a lot of people sort of make the assumption that the pe- you know the people that come out with me that come on my journeys are, are doing it because they're not capable of doing it themselves and actually that is completely across the board pretty much not true you know most of the people who come on guided experiences with me will be perfectly capable of doing it for themselves but they recognize the value of going with somebody who really knows a landscape who really knows a place who can bring all this additional all these additional layers to an experience that you that you wouldn't get if you were going on your own and then sometimes it's just people who have busy lives and they just want to be able to turn up not have to do any of the planning, not have to dry out any of the tents or sort out any of the gear at the end of the weekend. They want to make sure that those that time is blocked off in their calendar and that they actually do it because I don't know what you're like, but sometimes I'll be like, oh, I've got a free weekend, right? I'm definitely going to go and do whatever it is, camping or walking or going to the seaside. And then the weekend comes and actually the weather's not perfect and there's so many things to do and, and you just let all the other things in life take over. Whereas if you've booked an experience and you've paid for it, then, you know, there's much more chance that you're actually going to turn up and let yourself enjoy it. Um, so that can be a big factor for people as well, is actually making sure that they allocate that time for themselves. And do you worry about that when, as a leader, you know, if you're, as a guide, when you've booked a date in for people to come and you're sort of weather watching, is it something that you really worry about? Or do you just have have the confidence in your ability to handle to handle it and to make decisions in the moment? It definitely used to be a worry, you know, when I first started out, in part because it's such a responsibility when people have, have paid for, for you. <laughs> you know, that's that was quite, at the beginning, that was quite an overwhelming feeling. But now I'm, I, I'm confident that I can give people a valuable experience, pretty much whatever the weather. And obviously with outdoor stuff, you know, when you book something, you don't know what weather you're going to get. Sometimes people go into a weekend when the forecast is what they would see as not ideal. But universally, they actually, what happens, you know, if we've had a bit of a wet and windy weekend or whatever, is that people come out of the other end of it saying, you know what, that was actually amazing because there is no way that I would have ever gone out on my own on that forecast. And actually, I now see you can have a fantastic time. You just have to make some changes to the way that you make decisions, to where you go, to how you put the rhythm of the day, but you can still have a wonderful time and learn a lot about yourself, even if the weather's quite challenging. Yeah, I actually quite like those weekends as much as the the dry, sunny ones. (laughs) A lot of people who are thinking about moving towards a career that's more out in nature as such in in different ways they maybe worry that it will interfere with their own personal time outdoors you know sort of turning your your passion as such or your interest your love of something into a job how do you feel about that has it has it affected you positively negatively or is it just different if it if it has affected my own relationship then it's definitely been positive but i would say that within the caveat that i made some quite conscious choices right from the very start to make sure that i didn't turn everything that is my passion into my work. One one of my big passions in life is rock climbing, mountaineering in the hills and, you know, what a lot of people would see as kind of adventurous rock climbing, if you like, sea, sea, st- sea stacks, sea cliffs and uh, big mountain trad climbing. And I made a very conscious decision right from the start that I was never going to guide that. That's not what I'm 
interested in guiding. That's my, you know, that's something for me in a way that I really interact with landscapes and nature that, that I didn't want to turn into work. When you love being out in nature and spending time in wild places, and then your work also becomes about being in nature and spending time in wild places, it doesn't make it any less special. It just means that, you know, when I think about all the amazing sunsets and wildlife encounters and swimming in lochs and, you know, standing on summits and waking up in the forest, you know, and all of these things were in inverted commas work. That's just wow you know like I said earlier in the interview those are the bits that don't feel like work the bits that feel like work are the marketing and the doing your tax return and applying to endless emails but it hasn't at all changed my relationship with the outdoors because in those moments it doesn't feel like work. Before we bring this to a close I'd like to ask you about your wild side (laughs) because your company name is wild roots where do your wild roots lie the inspiration for the name wild roots came from this idea that we all have our roots in nature somewhere there's a way that we can all feel really connected to these places and i think for me that wild roots moment if you like the moment where you feel completely in the present moment in that landscape is are the are the the moments in between the the unexpected encounters that that always happen when you spend time outside time in nature time away from human landscapes if you like and you can't plan for them they can't be scheduled or um facilitated even they just happen unexpectedly so it might be when I'm climbing you end up on a belay ledge and a puffin lands next to you and you just have this little moment with this puffin or it might be like when I'm walking in the hills and like some beautiful flowers appear at my feet at the same moment that the breeze moves something and and you just suddenly feel completely connected in that moment and it can be so fleeting but I think it's a really, it it reminds me about the really, the key key parts of myself uh, and what I value in myself and also what I value in in life and experience. So yeah, that's where my wild oats lie in the unplanned moments in between. (laughs) Was that nurtured in you as a child? Was it something that you can reflect on from childhood or is it something that has happened from living in the environment that you're in? I think that exposure to to the outdoors, to nature, when you're a child, it makes you much more likely to search it out as an adult. So I suppose I'm saying yes. Like I, I grew up in the countryside in Yorkshire. It wasn't wild compared to the place that I live now, but I spent a lot of my time outside running around in fields jumping on haystacks our family holidays were you know my parents were not don't think they they wouldn't describe themselves as you know they weren't climbers they weren't mountaineers they weren't particularly adventurous but our family holidays were always cottages in the lake district or camping in France they were always outdoors based so it wasn't like it was consciously we weren't consciously what's the word uh, 
you know, tutored to engage with nature, but it was always there. And then I went to University of Manchester. I lived a very city life for a few years. When I was in Manchester, you know, I wasn't in the mountaineering club at university. I didn't go hill walking. I didn't go to the Peak District, even though I was in Manchester. I was in the city. I was in the the theatres and the bars and the nightclubs and the concrete jungle. And I sort of rebelled against it for a little while. And then it was like some, I remember a year after I graduated from my undergrad degree, I was still living in Manchester and it was literally like someone flicked a switch. I was like, I've got to get out of here. I need to get back to some like green or some, you know, some connection with wild places. And I think that's, that's testament to the fact that it was there. However much kids kind of moan about being taken on walks or all of these things, I am without doubt that they will come to value it as an adult yeah it's, it's really nice to see because I sometimes see you sharing some of the time that you spend outdoors with your daughter and it's just so beautiful to see you know that that connection with nature and sharing that with you it's it just looks so special and what what an environment for her to to grow up in yeah I mean she doesn't know any better she doesn't have any choice <laughs> she doesn't know any different other than the outdoors but yeah I don't think it will never be normal to me that A, I'm someone's mum, and B, even more so, that my daughter says things like, oh, my mummy's a mountain guide and she takes people to the top of Ben Nevis. I suppose I spent a lot of my life where my identity didn't feel like that was who I am, that I'm still getting used to it. That's, that's interesting. I can, not to the mother part, but I can definitely relate to that. It's, it's someone to, do you do you sometimes feel like you're sort of living two or three <laughs> separate lives like you've kind of you've got like the work life and then the more uh, admin type home based life and then and then you've got your own adventures like your own trail running and your rock climbing and everything it's like yeah yeah totally and I think especially you know here in Fort William you know all the friends that I've made here and stuff and like the other parents that that I know through Alina's you know, Alina being at nursery and things, they've only ever known me as like Anna, the mountain guide. So they, and I had an interesting conversation with one of my friends recently, you know, who I've got to know quite well in the past couple of years. And she was like, God, I didn't really, I just presumed that you'd done this your whole life, that like, you know, you grew up kind of rock climbing and hanging off cliffs. And I was like, no, this is like really, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I'm, I'm getting alarmingly close to 40 and this is really only the past, you know, 10, 15 years of my life that have been like this. So, you know, it still feels, it still feels in some ways quite new, although at some point I'm going to have to admit that I have been doing it for quite a long time. (laughs) (laughs) And what to you, ultimately, what's the impact that you want to make through your work, through your life? Oh gosh, um, that's a big question, isn't it? Well, I think it comes back to what we were, what I was talking about at the beginning. The overarching motivation for what, for my work, for why I do what I do, and why I offer the sorts of experiences in the mountains that I do, is that I really do strongly believe that spending time in wild places is so beneficial for us as humans, both for our own well-being, mental well-being and self-confidence and putting us and challenging ourselves has so many benefits. So I suppose I'm motivated by 
helping people to push their boundaries and to realize that they're capable of more than they are. But within the wider context, you know, the nature connection side of things, the focus on engaging with landscapes and, and creating opportunity for slow time is really rooted in that belief that without people having a personal connection with wild places, then, you know, they're not going to be motivated to think about their impacts as a human being and ultimately a sustainable future for for our planet, reducing our impact on our changing climate and that kind of thing. It's never going to happen unless people are connected with wild places. So, you know, I don't for one minute um, think that what I do is going to have any significant impact in the global scheme. But, you know, on an individual level, I hope that people who come on experiences with me will leave feeling more confident uh, in themselves and more connected with with uh, nature and landscapes and mountains and that that will filter through into how they make decisions in everyday life um, or at least be a small part of their journey towards that kind of thinking. Wow that was really beautifully yeah. put that was incredible <laughs> yeah and it's amazing how it circles back to what you did in your master's yeah it was a really transformative year in my life and I think a lot of a lot of the things that I'd always been thinking and feeling fell into place that year in terms of what what made sense to me and and how I'm kind of motivated to live my life and now you get to ask a question so if you wanted to help someone to break out of the cycle of thinking it's too late or too challenging for a career change what would you ask them to think about I would ask them to think about when you are sitting in that same place in 10 years time what would you regret not having done yet because I think that's is a limiting factor is not it's thinking that we've got all the time in the world, you know, when we haven't, we've got one life and, you know, we only get a set amount of years and within the parameters of meeting our basic needs, you know, beyond that, you should just do what you want to do. So think about the things that are really important to you and ask yourself the question, if I'm sitting here in 10 years time, what is the thing that I will be really cross with myself if I haven't done it yet? <laughs> and then go and do it. <laughs> Great question. And do you think throughout your, because you said that you've decided to do things that maybe you look back on now and go, wow, why did I decide to do that? You know, why did I, why did I do that when I was pregnant? Or <laughs> why did I leave that, that job that I had? Um, do you think that most things you can resolve and you can work through, even if you don't have the answers, you know, right there and then? Yeah, absolutely. I think we worry far too much about the what ifs and the maybes, but whatever we do, whatever path you take in life, there will be what ifs and maybes. And people are amazingly resilient. We're very good at helping each other and that there will always be a way to make something work if you want it enough. Massive thanks to Anna for taking part in this interview. Check out Wild Roots Highland Guiding if you would like to browse the experiences she has on offer. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know which parts you valued the most by contacting me at aboutTheAdventure.com. Thank you for listening.